You are now listening to the October 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. This is Alan Heller as we walk our talk and Polly Heller. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about discipleship Three men that I respect that have different sort of views and some similar views on what it makes, what it means to be a disciple. And then we're going to talk today also about what it takes to be a disciple maker. How do you do that? So first we'll talk about Howard Hendricks. He gave a message uh, one time talking about uh, what it means to be a disciple. And he said that Gallup in the 70s did a a poll survey poll which talked about you know is when everybody was uh, Chuck Colson wrote his book called Born Again and Born Again was a big slogan sort of in the 70s and the 80s and uh, Gallup did this poll where the number of people that attended church was greater than it had ever been people that said the Bible was the word of God just more than has ever been people who believed in heaven and hell more than they had ever been recorded and that they had a born again experience. The only problem was he made a conclusion at the end of his study that said, never before has the gospel made such inroads and yet make so little difference in how people live. <laughs> so here everybody's saying sad. that they're born again, that they believe in the word, that but Very they're not trendy. living like it. Very trendy to be born again. <laughs> exactly. And so he went on to talk, Howard Hendricks went on to talk about, and he was the, the used to be the chancellor uh, of Dallas Seminary or the honorary dean or something like that in his last years. But at one time he was the head of the Christian Education Department at Dallas Seminary. And here are the three things he talked about being a disciple, and I just thought they were very good. An unrivaled commitment he has to be first in everything, that God or Jesus has to be first in everything. That uh, We talked about this in another podcast. He talked about that Jesus made an exaggerated contrast when he said you need to hate your father, mother, sister, and brother. Basically, he's saying there, there cannot be a rival anywhere in terms of your relationship with the Lord. And then he talked about unceasing cross-bearing. Pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, that Jesus comes before self. What is your cross? It's not just a physical illness or it's not just the hard person you have to deal with or the person you're married to. Uh, picking up your cross means putting down yourself, life, and your flesh and following the Lord. There are those who will say at the last of their life, God will say to them, 
thy will be done. And there are other people that he will say, my will be done. And then the last one is unreserved cost. Christ must come before others' self, and the things that we possess, or our prestige, or our power that we might have, we need to give up everything, or we cannot be his disciple, is what he said in uh, Luke chapter 14. So, unrivaled commitment, unceasing cross-bearing, and unreserved cost. Matthew 16, it says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are building and we are battling and we need people who won't quit and won't allow anything to stop them. And the only way that we can be disciples like that, of course, Paulie, is to have the Holy Spirit being filled in our, being filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Galatians says, don't walk after the flesh, and then you will walk after the Spirit. Yeah, that is so true, Alan. I love that idea of having an unrivaled commitment to mm. Christ. If Christ is first in your life, that's not the same thing as church being first in your life or your ministry being first in your life, part of making Christ first in your life is being filled with his Holy Spirit because that is his command to us, to be filled with the Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to us to be our paraclete, which means to walk alongside. He's the one who came to take the place of Christ as God in us, God in the world. And so his Holy Spirit now speaks to us individually and communally. And, and part of being a disciple is learning how to be led by the Spirit of God. And some of being led by the Spirit and having our commitment to Christ be first is listening to what he is telling us to do and not to do. And sometimes church can lay demands on us that aren't necessarily what Christ wants for us. And we have a hard time saying no. We need to know what is Jesus saying to me that for me to say yes to as well as for me to say no to. Sometimes it means Yes, you need to get out of bed. You need to go and get to church early. You need to do this. I go like that serve. one. Can you do that one? <laughs> no, not me. You need to, but you need to get up and go and do. And sometimes the spirit might say, in what looks to be the same circumstance, the spirit might say, no, you need to stay home and spend time with me or focus on your family or be available to your spouse. And you can't know that if you're looking for just a, a yes and no rule, like every time that somebody asks me to do something, I need to say yes. Right. And I think being a disciple and a disciple maker, which we'll talk about next time, but um, being a disciple maker, you need to be principle-based about Scripture, not just every little thing 
trying to find an answer for every little In this situation, (laughs) you do A or you do B. So here's what it says in the book of Acts, chapter 1. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit in not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. You will tell other people about me to in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So it's the power of the Spirit that's going to see people come into God's kingdom and then be discipled um, by you. That's right. Because we can end up doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Hmm. We can serve and serve and serve in the children's Sunday school ministry, and it makes me feel so good about myself because I'm giving so much time to these children, or I'm visiting sick people, or I'm, t- I'm making meals, and I feel so good about myself because I'm doing that. Well, that's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Not that you're not supposed to feel good about yourself, but your main objective is to be serving Christ, to be doing what God wants you to do. And, and that it, there's a very subtle difference in that, that other people might not even be able to see. But if you are being discipled by someone, that the person who's discipling you might say, so how are things going with the children's ministry? Oh, they're going great. I just love these kids. I feel so good about it. And, you know, and on and on. And well, what if God was wanting you to take a break from that for a while so you can focus on other things? Oh, I could never do that. I'm just saying that a good discipler will be able to ask you the questions that will cause you to examine your own heart and your own motives and say to you, you know, let's go a little deeper in this. What do you think Jesus really wants you to be doing here? Is this the best use of your time? Is this the best use of your spiritual gifts? Is this really building in you the characteristics that God has for you, kind of going back to the humility and the the meekness that you were talking about before. One of the things that will happen if you're using your gifts and abilities and if you're truly walking in the Spirit, you're going to see fruit. You're going to see people coming to know Him. You're going to see people being blessed by your ministry. And so um, it's not that we're saying don't do ministry or don't do what you feel good about doing. It's exactly. just, is it directed by the Holy Spirit? Right. There's a balance. Let me just, uh, another uh, great article about discipleship I, I read about was Greg Laurie mentions uh, in his article about the requirements for discipleship. His number one was Love God more than anyone else, which is what we've already talked about. Um, 
Number two was deny yourself and take up your cross. That sounds familiar because in Luke 14.27 it says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's Luke 9.23. So again, cross-bearing. And then three was forsake all that you have. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple, Luke 14.33. To forsake means to surrender your claim to, to say goodbye to it. Until I recognize that everything I have belongs to Jesus Christ, I'm not his disciple. Consider Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, which we've talked about, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, sell all you have. And so, uh, again, forsaking everything for the law, the, you'll lose things. But, you know, he says, if you don't lose your life, you can't find it. You lose your life in Christ's life, which means you take on a new identity. And we haven't talked, love to do a series on what does it mean to be identified with Christ and no longer, Galatians 2.20 says, it's no longer I who live, but it's the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, you know, we can't learn everything all at the same time, but you got to start somewhere. The fourth thing Greg Laurie talked about was counting the cost. Luke 14, 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down and first count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Jesus underlines the importance of counting the cost of, a disciple, of discipleship. Many people make impulse purchases without even considering the cost, or they rush into marriage or career. Sadly, some do the same in their commitment to Christ. So the point is illustrated in Luke 9, 57 and 58. Now it happened as the, they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the man in the story did not even wait to be called. He hastily volunteered. He seemed to have a good heart but he was <laughs> impulsive. And so counting the cost uh, and telling, uh, you know, when I first was asked to be a disciple of my friend Joe Webb back in college, and it was, I, I talked about this in an earlier podcast, that, that uh, he basically sat me down at what we called the beverage center, which is sort of like the place where you got snacks and stuff on student campus. Student Union Building. Student <laughs> Union Building, yes. Paulie went to Springfield College in Massachusetts, too. So Joe sat me down, and he just says, I'm the new guy in town here, and I just want to ask you some questions. And so he opened to Luke, where it talked about the parable of the sower and the seeds and the good soil, and, you know, said some of the seed fell on hard pan and just got scorched, and some fell on you know, where it grew up and the thorns and the thistles and the cares of the world uh, got in the way. And, and he says, what kind of soil do you want to be? And he said, that there's the good soil that, you know, the seed was planted and it grew and became uh, life-giving fruit. And so I said, of course, I want to be good soil. Well, here's what you have to do. And so he gave me 
some assignments and things that I needed to do in order to be a little bit more committed to my relationship with God. And I am very thankful that he did that. And I couldn't really do all the requirements that Joe had for me about going out and sharing my faith in the dorms and stuff. I worked out three or four hours a day, five to six days a week, and I just didn't have the time that maybe some other students had. But he was willing to let me be a disciple and become a part of this growth group that he had called an action group. And he saw the potential in me, and that was a good lesson. And I think Jesus saw the potential in Peter, even though he said, I won't deny you and did deny you, uh, did deny him. And he said, on this little pebble, I will build my church. He, Peter was Petros, which was pebble, and then and he turned into a rock, uh, and the church was built on his testimony of who God was. And so even though he failed Jesus, and Jesus had to ask him, do you love me, Peter? And he said, of course I love you. And he had to ask him three times, do you really love me? Do you love me more than anything else in the world? And he said, feed my sheep. So the last one I want to talk about before we end our time is um, a classic, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Rog Robert E. Coleman. And you can get that, you know, in any, uh, on Amazon or whatever. Um, but he has a, a careful study of Christ's life and strategy to reach the world involve the following principles of discipleship. So his first one was selection. He carefully selected a few key men as disciples, and he prayed for them. He actually fasted and prayed all night. Um, and then, so selection and then association. He gave extensive personal attention to his disciples, which we've talked about already. Consecration. He taught his disciples progressively more of the demands of following him. In other words, they knew what it was to believe in him, and then he taught him more about accountability and obeying what he said. Impartation is the next one. He emphasized to his disciples the essential role of the Holy Spirit, which is what we just talked about. And then demonstration. He modeled what it was he was talking about. And, of course, we talk about Jesus' model is he did it. Then he asked uh, them to come and do it with him. Then he asked them to do it while he supervised them, and then he just let them do it. And so that's really a great model for discipleship, going with your discipleship and, uh, disciple and showing him what to do or her, and then doing it with them and critiquing, then letting them do it, and then letting them go and do it on their own. And he sent out, Jesus sent out the 70, and they came back all excited. The demons were uh, subject to them, and, and uh, they were just excited about this ministry experience. And Jesus said, just be thankful your name is written <laughs> in the book of life. So that's that humility that we've talked about. Then the next one was supervision. He provided alternating instruction and application, giving encouragement and correction, and then giving them new assignments. That's in Mark 6.30 and Luke 9.10. And then lastly is reproduction. He always kept before them the goal of reproducing his likeness in others. So that's in John 15, 16. 
So the whole thing is follow me as I follow Christ, not follow me as I go into a brick wall. And um, so any last words about discipleship or what it takes, Paulie, uh, and, and what encouragement would you give to somebody who wants to be a, a disciple? I think the main thing to keep in mind is that being a Christian is is being a follower of Christ and that that everything that we need is in him and he provides us all that we need for life and godliness Mm -hmm. and that begins with our following him into death to ourselves Mm -hmm. and into the resurrection power of his holy spirit and he anything that he calls us to do he will do in us and through us and there's nothing that he will ask us to do that he will not do himself well, and through he's us. Given, right. He's given us the power and authority. And I think sometimes we forget that it's him who gives us that power and authority. It's not us. And so he said, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And so that's God's call on each of us. And we hope, you know, the name of our program is Walking Our Talk, and we're hoping that these lessons are helping you walk your talk in the Lord. And if you want any more information, just go to walkandtalk.org, O-R-G. It's been great to be with you. We look forward to talking about what it takes to be a disciple maker next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Freedom Defined, based on Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Whenever you think about temptation, I think it's important, we felt like it was important to front load a conversation about the relationship between freedom and the law. Because I think that when you think about temptation, it might lead you to believe that you're talking about some kind of bondage, something that is in some way going to inhibit you. But that is not the way that the Bible speaks about the nature of the fight against temptation. Any discussion on the fight of temptation needs to begin talking about the clarity of the relationship between Christian freedom and the law. And, as we said last week, even those in Christ, those well acquainted with the grace of God, will face temptation. I think that if I asked for a testimony here today, every Christian here has faced temptation, uh, many of you would say, yes, already this morning I have faced temptation in many ways. Had to pass three Starbucks on the way, I avoided it every time. But we face temptation all over the place. Uh, Last week we saw that John Owen provided us with a, a working definition of temptation, which I updated to say this, temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and the heart of a person 
away from obedience to God and towards sin in any degree. Now, that is the nature of what temptation is. It's a drawing away from obedience to God towards sin. And the Bible says that Satan, the world, other people, our own selves, or even a mixture of all of those can excite us towards sin. And one of the great lies of the flesh is that obedience to God is a, a straitjacket. You've probably either heard that or even maybe heard a voice in your head say that. And that sin actually provides true freedom. But Paul actually in Galatians is arguing the exact opposite. He is actually arguing that to this mostly Gentile group of churches in Galatia, these churches where Peter seemed to at least be permitting a teaching that said that if people wanted to become Christians, they needed to put their faith in Christ and to be circumcised to become part of the people of God. Paul is speaking to them and he is arguing that this is not true Christianity. It is not bondage, but it is actually true freedom. In fact, in his commentary, F.F. Bruce says that it seems like The distortion of the gospel that some taught in this setting highlighted that Isaac was the son of promise. Remember Isaac, that son of Abraham that ultimately would become the the promised seed. And Gentiles were sons according to the flesh and they needed to be circumcised and to become children of the free mother. So that's the argument that, that if you were a Gentile, then you were actually not children of Isaac. Well, in Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 4, Paul is actually flipping the script and showing us the true children of the the free mother are these Gentiles who have put their faith in Christ. So this morning, we're going to see that understanding freedom in Christ is critical to the fight against temptation. Understanding our freedom in Christ is critical to the fight against temptation. We're going to basically survey Galatians 4 before we get to Galatians 5, 1-4, just so that we can catch ourselves up to speed. So, first point is this. The gospel means utter dependence on Christ, and we see that in Galatians 4. Now, if we want to understand Galatians 5, 1, and the freedom that Paul is speaking of, we need to understand the flow of Galatians 4. Now, if you look there, you'll notice in those first six verses that Paul speaks of a time when these Christians that he's speaking to lived enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of this world, but whom Christ came and he was born under the law to redeem them out from under the law, they and we might become sons of the living God and heirs to the promises that God made to his people. So the gospel means, catch this, that we as Christians are sons, not slaves. That's what Paul wants us to see. We are sons, not slaves, because of the gospel. And that is good news. That is the gospel. But in verse 9, Paul then says that he is perplexed. He is perplexed that they have turned back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that once enslaved them. So there's regression that's going on. And the teaching that Paul is so concerned about centers on this distortion of the gospel which is actually an addition to the gospel. So don't miss this addition and what it is. Here, this addition is subtraction when it comes to the gospel. If you're adding something to the gospel, it's actually subtraction from the gospel. So anytime someone says that you need something in addition to union with Christ to achieve the next level of spirituality, it's actually regress, not progress. Right? If, if somebody is saying that you need to do this thing plus faith in Christ to be a Christian, to be loved and accepted by God, that is regress, not 
progress. That's Mr. Worldly Wisdom, not the gospel speaking. So then in verses 21 to 31, Paul flips the script on those who are claiming that the Gentiles need to put their faith in Christ and to be circumcised, observing the legal commands of the law to please God. See, Paul provides an in-your-face allegory. He is, I think, trying to disrupt the crowd with the gospel. And this allegory actually goes back to Abraham's two sons through two women. Uh, One was a slave woman and one was a free woman. Now, Jews would have thought themselves to be the children of the free woman because they were the flesh and blood sons and daughters of the child of promise, Isaac, through his free mother, Sarah. That's what they would have expected in any kind of conversation about a free woman and a slave woman, a free child and a slave child. But take note, Paul says that Jews, according to the flesh, who are looking for salvation in Mount Sinai, and the Mosaic law and that old covenant, actually represent Hagar in slavery. And those that are not accepted by God. So he tells these Jews, you are not accepted by God. You are actually more like the child of Hagar, Ishmael, who is a child who is a slave. Now that's quite the opposite of what these false teachers are saying. But even more, he goes on to say that born-again Gentiles, who is mostly this audience that he is writing to, who have put their faith in Christ, are the true children of Abraham, sons of the free woman, born through promise, citizens of Jerusalem that is above and is free. Fulfillment of Isaiah 54.1's expectation of a barren woman becoming fruitful and her children becoming partakers in a new covenant and those who are actually accepted by God. He is saying that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in these Gentile Christians and that they are the true children of God. Gospel leads to freedom. Adding anything to the gospel leads to slavery. That's what Paul wants us to see. Now here's the gospel math. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Our salvation is from God. Our righteousness before God, our access to God, and our becoming what God intended us to be is all grounded in our union with Christ, being united with Him. And that union comes by grace and through faith in Christ alone. Here's another gospel equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If all you have is Christ then you have everything that you need. In fact, John Calvin argued this point very similarly. When he was speaking about justification before God, he said, really, if you're thinking about being justified before God, having a right standing before Him, having peace with God, or if you're talking about what it means to be holy and to become sanctified and to become more holy day by day, both of those things flow out of a grander reality, and that is your union with Christ. And those tributaries, they don't cross. He says, you don't look over from the fact that you are growing in holiness and say, oh, that must be that I should have more confidence that God has saved me because look at the good works that I'm doing. He says, no, I look to my union with Christ for any confidence that I have, that I have peace with God. And that's exactly the gospel that Paul here is preaching to the Galatians. I am justified by my faith union with Christ alone. My only hope for sanctification, including fighting temptation, like we're talking about in this series, is only empowered by my faith union with Christ. I don't look to my sanctification as a ground of my confidence that I am saved. 
or that I'm accepted by God. If I do that, I will think that on good days, God loves me. And on bad days, God hates me based on my pitiful efforts. And boy, do I have a lot of bad days where I feel like when I look at the holiness of God, my efforts don't meet the standard. That's not the gospel. See, I look to Christ, Christ alone, confidence to approach God's throne of grace boldly, joyfully, expectantly, as a free son or daughter who has the favor of God, and as a father who is not inviting me in as a hopeless slave with no rights. Now, as a church, I think it's important for us just to continually be reminded of this. We value a lot of things that we think are really good for the Christian faith and for your Christian walk that are going to be an encouragement to you. We think that baptism, communion, church discipline, spiritual disciplines, church membership, all good things that are meant to drive you towards confidence in Christ alone. But none of these should be the ground of any of our confidence before God, and none of these save or sanctify us ultimately. Only Christ can do that. So the question that we should be asking every morning is, how am I united with Christ by faith? Trusting that that is the only ground of hope or acceptance before him that I have. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, as we begin, uh, we want to encourage you, as we encourage people, to commit yourself to Christ. But we want to make sure that people understand the gospel. And here's why this is important. I have heard Mr. Worldly Wisdom's voice come into my office in all kinds of forms. I've heard Mr. Worldly Wisdom's voice come from folks who are coming out of Mormonism or Catholicism or atheism. And it all sounds very similar. And all of those, there is this discussion as they share the good news of the gospel. And as they begin to unfold their understanding of what the gospel is, those who misunderstand it, it all sounds the same. It's that at the end of the day, you need to make sure that you've done more good than bad because, hey, I'm basically a good person and I'm not bad like those other sinners out there. Well, friend, if that is the picture of Christianity that you have, that you think that we think that we are people that are kind of the best of humanity, that do more good than bad, that are basically good to the core, that's not the gospel that we put our heart and our place, our trust in. See, according to Paul, that kind of religion is dead religion. See, temptation will seem exciting to you if you believe that God just wants you to, be, to do more good than evil at the end of the day. If that's it, like you can tinker with temptation because you know that like at the end of the day, I'm just trying to make sure that I basically eke out a little bit more good than evil. Temptation will seem exciting if you think that you have the ability to manage temptation in that way. And that you can do it in your own strength, under your own power. Jesus, I think, will seem boring, insignificant, and excessive if you don't sense that it is only by grace and through faith that you are saved and that not of yourselves, but a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast in his own efforts. See, worldly wisdom runs towards self-righteousness through your own works. And it is powerless before temptation. But don't miss this. God has made us for so much more So much more than resting in our own feeble efforts. God has made us for much more than that. I love what Irenaeus says here. He says, the glory of God is man fully alive. That is what the glory of God is. It is man fully alive. That is what God wants for us. It is not for us to be bound and to be less than what we've been made for. It is that we might 
fully be what we've been made for, and that is only in the glory of God and the pursuit of the glory of God that we find it. And we see just that in Galatians 5, 1 to 4, where we want to focus our efforts this morning. Notice the second point, main point, is this. The gospel means a relentless pursuit of freedom in Christ, in verses 5, 1 to 4. Now, I see two realities in 5, 1 to 4 that we want to spend our time on this morning. The first here, Paul sums up and applies that allegory of Jerusalem below and Jerusalem above by saying this in Galatians 5.1. And look there with me again. Here's what he says. After that whole discussion about the slave woman and the free woman, the child of promise and the child who is a slave, he says this in verse 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The question that you have to ask here is what exactly does he mean by freedom? And so we're going to look at this in a couple of ways. The first is this. Notice that he shows standing firm in the freedom of Christ is the point. Standing firm in this freedom is Paul's point. He said this is the point of Christianity and and the new birth and the new covenant. It is you stand in this freedom. Now the language here communicates that Christ set us free for the purpose of freedom. And freedom is the point. But what is this freedom? You know, when I was in college... I had a lot of friends uh, who came from teetotaling Baptist backgrounds. And when they read Galatians 5.1, it was like the first time they'd ever read it. And they got really excited. And they said, well, I, I think that what this means, an application of this, is that I can drink beer freely. And so they would drink a lot as an application of Galatians 5.1. Uh, more recently, I, I've had a number of Christians who have said that the application of this has to do with like, the way that they can use legalized marijuana for recreational purposes. Like, I think that's what freedom in Christ looks like according to this text. Of course, I would say that verse 13 provides a quick warning about the way that we should read this. He says that freedom should not be used as an opportunity for the flesh. So that's not what he's talking about. But what freedom is Paul actually talking about here? Well, take note, it's critical to Paul. He says, stand firm in this freedom. So it's important that we do this. And that's the position that standing firm of a military warrior who's holding the line in battle. So the blood of Christ was shed that we might be free and fight to stay free. It's an important posture that we are fighting for the freedom that has been given to us. I think Martin Luther nails what this freedom is in his commentary. There he writes this, Not freedom given us by the emperor, but that which Christ has made us free. Freedom from God's everlasting wrath. And where is this done? In the conscience. Our freedom stays there and goes no further for Christ has made us free, not civilly, not physically, but divinely. That is to say that we are made free in such a way that our our conscience is free and quiet, not fearing God's future wrath. This is true, inestimable freedom. That if we compare its majesty with the other sorts, those others are like one drop of water compared with the whole sea. Who can describe our state when we are assured in the heart that God is neither or neither will be angry with us, but will forever be a merciful and loving Father to us for Christ's sake? He goes on to write that we are set free in our conscience from the law, from sin, from death, the power of the devil, hell, and so on, as the wrath of God cannot frighten us since Christ has delivered us from it, so the law, sin, and death cannot accuse and condemn us. Now, don't miss this. The fight 
against temptation begins with a, a conscience that stands firm in the freedom of the gospel on the conscience level. Now, the conscience is a unique characteristic that God has created us with. It's a, a unique uh, characteristic that is unique to humanity. We all have the capacity for a conscience. It reflects the moral capacity of God. It's our consciences of, of what we believe is right and wrong. And when Adam sinned, the fall affected that conscience as well. So while Luther is right in saying to go against your conscience is neither safe nor right, your conscience is not God, and it needs to hear you preaching the gospel to it daily, educating it in the school of Christ. So we all have a conscience. All of our consciences are are fallen in some ways. And we need to be constantly preaching the gospel to our consciences so that they are shaped like Christ. As Mark Dever says, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. So we should never violate our consciences. We need to educate them so that they don't enslave us. And the New Testament describes that conscience in a number of ways. Sometimes we see the conscience spoken of negatively. A conscience can be weak. So 1 Corinthians 8, 7, there's a conversation about the eating of meat that is sacrificed to idols. And you'll remember that there is a a person who is weak and a person who is strong. And there, there's a weak Christian. And Christians with weak consciences struggle with eating meats that are sacrificed to idols. And seeing others do so because their consciences have not been trained well with the gospel. In fact, John MacArthur says a weak conscience is one that is hypersensitive. It is overactive and about issues that are not sins. That's what a weak conscience is. It, it sees things that are wrong that the Bible doesn't say are wrong. That's the conscience that says don't taste or touch things that God has not excluded. It's to create unbiblical rules about external things that is often easily wounded. See, these Christians spread over things that those mature in the gospel don't sweat. It's important not to encourage people to violate weak consciences. Let me, let me just be clear. You don't want to violate your weak conscience or encourage others to do so because it could eventually lead to a hardening of that conscience, which is a gift from God. But instead, what we want to do is we want to speak into that conscience the gospel and help it to understand the gospel better. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have over here a weak conscience, you can also move towards a seared conscience, like those who are led away from faith in 1 Timothy 4.2. There it says, there are those with seared consciences that were led away from faith through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, did you notice the connection between the weak conscience and the seared conscience? Did you see the similarities there? Notice that both weak and seared consciences fall under and promote rules that are not informed by the gospel. See, the gospel tells Peter that he can eat bacon. Man, that's a good religion if you ask me. But even more, it signals that those far from God suffering and wrestling with consciences that are weak and desperate can find peace with God. That's what Peter is being told as he is told that he can eat bacon. It's that Gentiles can come to faith in Christ. Now, positively, a conscience can be strong, like we read about in Romans 14, where again, what are you doing with food sacrificed to idols? And you'll notice that in Romans 14, those who have a strong conscience have a conscience that's theologically trained. And they are able to eat all kinds of foods. 
They don't discern days like others do, and they they drink wine. They feel free to do that. So the weak conscience limits himself to vegetables, valuing some days over others, and it refrains from wine. A conscience can also be good in Acts 23.1, and it can be cleansed in Hebrews 9.9, but the conscience is a significant part of what makes us human. So a Christian conscience can positively be weak or seared, negatively weak or seared, and positively either good or strong. And we shouldn't violate our consciences, but we shouldn't treat our consciences as God either. Just quick facts on the conscience. God's Word always has authority over our consciences. So when you feel like something is wrong, but God's Word doesn't say so clearly, your conscience might be weak on that issue. Now, it doesn't mean that you're weak on every issue, but you could need to preach the gospel to yourself on that particular issue to bring it in line with the truth of the gospel. And here's why this matters when it comes to temptation. You know, we're focusing on those circumstances that we find ourselves in where we are excited to sin against God by Satan, by the world, by other men in the world, our own selves, and sometimes a mixture of these things. And a free conscience that is saturated with the gospel is the best defense against temptation's offense. See, a weak conscience can lead us into relying on our own works because we don't fully understand what it means to be free in Christ. Living as though we are prevented from things that we are not is actually not effulgent with the gospel. Keeping and adding rules to the gospel, it does not show off the power of the gospel. It may feel safe, but it actually hides the power of the gospel because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. See, that, that's not the true God-glorifying humanity that God has called us to individually and collectively. We have been called to be a free people that revel in the freedom of the gospel. And I think that we think sometimes that weak consciences and legalism or adding rules to salvation is actually safer than following Mr. Worldly Wisdom, but it's actually the same thing. It is looking for salvation and hope in another place than Christ alone. Now, strong consciences could be an occasion for sin as well. Either they can bully weaker consciences, not being humble and gracious and gentle and kind with them. But notice after reminding them in verse 13 of this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, he reminds them, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, if if you sense that you are, are strong in your freedom with Christ, don't grow lazy and standing firm in that freedom. In other words, a healthy conscience educated by the gospel will lead to love if you're rightly following it out. But as our consciences drift from the heavenly Jerusalem towards the earthly Jerusalem, we become cannibals, according to Paul. Some of the kids were like, he said cannibals. Is he going to talk about people eating people? This is a great Sunday. Not good, kids. Not good. Never good to eat other people. You can write that down in your notebook and show mom and dad and talk about it at lunch later. But that's exactly what verse 15 says. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, if a local church who is one anothering, loving one another in the way that we have been commanded to by Christ himself, if it drifts from the glorious riches of Christ that have been bestowed on us as adopted children of God, nobody's safe. If we drift from that gospel, God's children are not safe. Everyone turns on one another, disunity breaks out, And that can happen over sin issues. That can happen over non-sin issues. 
Uh, I remember uh, my grandmother went to a church for decades. She recently died, loved the Lord, um, grateful for that as with Jesus right now. But she experienced a church split one time over a thing that was actually a good thing, communion. They had this fight in the church and it went this way. They had a common cup that they were taking communion out of. Everybody was drinking out of the same cup. Had some millennials who came in and messed it up. Started saying, you know what, I'm worried about germs and stuff. Heard that guy's got like hoof and mouth disease. I don't want us to drink from the same cup. Started a fight and people started fighting over like, well, I think that we should take from individual cups, not like the collected cup. And other people were like, well, that's not unity like we read about in the New Testament. And so they began like this fight and finally they said, well, we'll just have communion in different ways and we won't do it the same. And like, we'll kind of look ugly at each other across the aisle as you're taking communion because that's what it's about. See, that's not a sin issue, but it became one. It caused division. People turned on one another. They had a a conscience level conviction that you either need to drink out of the cup or you need to drink out of individual cups. Or one person said, you know, like, I don't even think it's an issue either way. And I just prefer the little cup. So I'll go with the little cup. But it became an issue of division in the body because of the way the consciences were working out. And it wasn't a sin thing that started it. It was a battle of consciences and they turned on each other. So our fight for our conscience is really about our daily joy in Christ and the unity that we enjoy as a local church. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I believe this is a beautiful promise that God offers you if you struggle with a restless conscience that tells you that you are never good enough for others or for God. I just heard a young lady share a testimony with me about that recently. It was just this last couple of weeks. She sat in a chair and just told me about how she spent years just thinking that she was not good enough for God and that she feared that if she did try to come to God by faith that he wouldn't take her because she didn't feel good enough for God. And maybe that's you. I want you to know that Jesus is the only one who can tell you with certainty that your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God. And Jesus came to tell you just that. See, those who confess their sins before God and turn in faith to Jesus, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, he now lives to intercede for you with God, and you can know that God is for you in Christ. You just put your faith in Christ today. That can be you. And Hebrews 9.14 can be true about you. There it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what the gospel does. It frees our consciences that we might be purified and serve God joyfully. You know, Luther's words could be true for you today. Again, Luther writes this in his commentary where he says it's easier to speak of freedom in Christ than to believe it. Have y'all ever felt that? It's easier to talk about freedom in Christ than to actually believe it and trust it and put your life into it. This is what he goes on to say. If we could apprehend it, the reality of this freedom in Christ, if we could apprehend it with a sure and steadfast faith, then no rage or terror of the world, the law, sin, death, or the devil could be so great that it would not be swallowed up just as a little drop of water is swallowed up into the sea. See, Christian freedom swallows up all of these and replaces them, he says, with righteousness, peace, and everlasting life. Love that image. Those things that seem so great in temptation that maybe you're feeling today. He says, guess what? If we really, rightly, and fully had a sure and steadfast faith of the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ, it would be dropped up and turned into something that looked like a drop of water falling into the ocean. That's the power that comes to us if we really truly believe and are convicted by the freedom that we have in Christ and has been brought to us. But there's a second point, important point to close this with, and that's this. B, standing firm in freedom is a serious command. 
Standing firm in freedom is a, is a serious command. Look with me again at verses 2 to 4. Galatians 5, 2 to 4. Here's what he says. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Scary and haunting words. Don't miss this. We can be tempted to think that legalism and self-righteousness are more holy sin struggles and that they are less worldly than living it up in Vegas, right? But Paul says, seeking your hope and joy at Sinai or Vegas both lead away from Christ. Now, I know you're looking like for Vegas in the text. It's not in the text. It's a metaphor. If you are seeking your hope and licentiousness and living wildly in sin, or if you are putting your confidence in Sinai, Paul is saying it is the same kind of thing. Now, after the service, I know someone is going to say that I said that if you are free in Christ, you can go to Vegas and let loose. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply acknowledging that Paul says here, if you are seeking to please God or win acceptance from him through your own works, Sinai will fall on your head. So Christ will be of no advantage to you. Here it's confidence in circumcision. That sign that was given to Abraham of the covenant, covenant that was everlasting that he was going to make, that he was going to fulfill through him and his children. And he says, that covenant pointed to the greater covenant that has been brought to us by grace through Christ and his death. We have a new and better covenant. And so if you're in that covenant, then you need to be looking to Christ and the law of Christ that he's going to speak about later in his letter. And we have all kinds of other things that we can trust before God today other than circumcision. All kinds of things. Things like, I'm not as bad as other people. I've never really sinned big. I'm pretty good compared to others. Everybody likes me. So God must like me. Everybody else kind of likes me. Or I, I keep the rules of the community and I fall in line and I don't stick out. and It seems like I just fit here. I'm okay and I'm good. I go to church every Sunday. I'm baptized. I take communion each week. I teach theology. My, my parents are Christians. I'm a member of my local church. There are all kinds of things that I, I dream about doing that God's word says I shouldn't do, so I don't, and I'm miserable for Jesus, so he has to let me in because I earned it. Or my conscience just feels kind of okay. I feel fine. I must be fine. Paul would say that none of these things prove a gospel-shaped conscience that clings to freedom in Christ with both hands. See, an enslaved conscience actually points to a self-righteousness that believes that you can please God and win acceptance through self-effort. But Paul says the problem is that God doesn't grade on a curve like my Hebrew professor did. I'm so glad he graded on a curve. I failed until I made an A. It was a failing grade, and yet the curve was very steep. And sometimes I think that we just think that God grades in that way. But, but notice that that is not the way that Paul says God who is infinitely holy and just and righteous, grades in verse 3. Did you see that? It's not the same kind of curved grading scale. He says, if you fail at one point, you fail. I don't know anybody in this room who would say that I feel very confident coming before God at the end of the day and saying that I have not failed at at least one point. In fact, many of us would say, I would be happy to be able to say after today that I had not, say, had not failed at one point, but I would never say that because that would be a lie and that would fail at least two points, right? But verse 4 adds, not only have you failed if you failed at one point, 
If you are seeking and trusting in Sinai and that covenant other than the new covenant that is in Christ and Christ alone, verse 4 adds that you are severed from Christ. That you have, he says, fallen away from grace. I think he could have stopped it, severed from Christ, and I'm terrified. But then he just says, and I'm going to add, and fallen away from grace. Just in case you missed the point. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this freedom in Christ. It is a huge deal for the Christian and everyday fight against temptation. God has called us as individual Christians and as a collective church to be as fully human as God has created us. And that means that we need to listen to and obey the voice of the Good Shepherd, resisting all of their claims of truth that seek to bind our consciences. So Christianity isn't a straitjacket. It's the unleashing of humanity to be altogether glorious in the way that God created us. Don't you want that? Well, let me go on to just show a, a few ways that we should be thinking about how we can unleash the freedom of the gospel upon our consciences. And I've got five quick ways, and you can dream up others this afternoon, but here are five quick ones. The first is you need to be intimate with the gospel. You need to understand the beauty of the gospel. You need to rehearse the gospel to yourselves daily. And when I speak of the gospel, I'm not only talking about God, man, Christ response, the reality that God is our, our good creator king who has authority over us, that we are sinners who need grace that only comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we are called to repent and believe that gospel. That is true, that you need to be focused, we need to be focused daily on the multi faceted brilliance of the gospel. The different aspects and truths and realities that have come to us in the gospel. Truths like the fact that God sent his son who died and paid the penalty of our sin so that he could say it is finished so that we can trust that we are accepted before God, that we are forgiven. What about the beauty of the gospel in the sense that Jesus is our great high priest who sits enthroned next to the Heavenly Father right now, forever making intercession for you and me, so that as we sin even today, Christ is there for us. He is speaking on your behalf in Christ. He is calling the Father to once again shed mercy on you, not because of your greatness or your perfection, but because of His perfection. The gospel is full of beauty and brilliance that we ought to spend the rest of our lives unfolding and tackling and applying to our consciences and our hearts so that we don't go around feeling guilty and sad when we have not thought enough about the brilliance of the gospel and what it means for us. The gospel ought to warm our hearts towards God. It ought to warm our hearts towards others. It should not make us sad. It should make us happy for God. It should be a great deterrent against sin if we really understand and look to the gospel. Second, we need to fill our mind and heart daily with God's word. We need to fill our mind and heart daily with God's word as we meditate on who Christ is, who is for you. Paul says to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. And of course, we know who is above. It is Christ who is seated next to the Father in heaven, who is even now interceding for us. Our minds need to be with Christ, where Christ is. That's a great deterrent to fighting temptation. Third, know that there are probably things that you think are right that are wrong. There are probably things that you think are wrong that are right. In other words, there needs to be a certain sense of humility in us 
as we look at our consciences, and we need to be constantly looking to whatever it is that we are seeing is binding us in light of what the Word of God actually says. In other words, we want to treat Christ's voice in the Scriptures as authoritative over our moral compass. Now, some of you here today are Dallas Cowboys fans, and I think that's very wrong. But I haven't been able to find a clear biblical reasons why. I can sort of connect some verses that make me feel really good about telling you how wrong you are. So there's that. Number four, when something feels wrong, look to God's word to see if the Bible says it is. If not, pray that God would conform your conscience to this world, to his word. In other words, if you feel like something's wrong, look to God's word to see what the Bible says. And if it's not wrong, pray that God would conform your conscience to his word so that your heart would beat with Christ, that you would have the mind of Christ, that you would have evaluations that are Christ-centered, gospel-saturated. Fifth, check your heart if you were chewing on others. You know, sometimes you can sort of trace the trail of breadcrumbs back from your life to the way that you're actually believing about God and others. In other words, one of the, the, the initial indicators sometimes in my life that I need to like go spend some serious time with Jesus and his word, prayer. Sometimes maybe I just need to get a nap and eat a Snickers bar, right? But sometimes I start seeing the way that I'm treating others and I'll realize really quickly, I need to run back to Christ. I need to reevaluate where I'm at. And so check your heart and see if you are chewing on others, if you're gossiping or you're speaking in a way that doesn't evidence fruits of the Spirit. Uh, it, It could be that you too need a nap or a Snickers bar, or it may be that you're not trusting the gospel. The gospel propels us to love others sacrificially as Christ loved us, according to to verses 13 and 14 here. So a community that is divided, according to Paul, has lost sight of the freedom of the gospel. We've been enslaved again to elementary principles of this world. But a united community that loves freely declares the power of the gospel to all who look on even to the very realms of spiritual beings, rulers, and authorities. That is the display that is made by a church, the united under the gospel. Isn't that the church that you want to be? Isn't that the church you want to be? It's the church I want to be. Let's pray. Jesus
Coming up next is Understanding Israel. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program series, Understanding Israel. Last week, we looked at the Feast of Passover and saw how Jesus represented the Passover lamb from the Old Testament. This week, we will be studying the Feast of Unleavened Bread. First, let's take a look at what the word unleavened means. Leaven is an ingredient in making bread, such as yeast or baking powder, which is what makes bread rise. Unleavened is bread made without yeast or baking powder. Today, we will see crackers or tortillas as unleavened bread. Communion wafers, or Jewish matzos, also used for communion, are considered unleavened as well. Now, the history of this feast. It was right after the Lord had passed over the houses with the lamb's blood on the doorposts and the lentil, and the firstborn of all the Egyptians were killed. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 through 34, we read, Then he, Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go and worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound in the clothes on their shoulders. As they left Ramses and journeyed to Succoth with their flocks and herds, we skip to verse 39 and read, They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leaven since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now let's back up a bit to chapter 12, to verses 14 through 18, where God ordains this as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Lord said, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. 
No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month, at evening. In Scripture, leaven represents sin. So in observing this feast on the first day, the Jews had to sweep and clean all the yeast or baking powder from their home, a picture of cleaning the sin from their lives, a spiritual cleansing, so to speak. Through Jesus' crucifixion, we too are cleansed from sin. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, Isaiah writes about the suffering servant Jesus. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. To update the wording in today's language, Jesus was pierced and bruised for our sins, and by the stripes of his beatings we are healed. Amazingly, this is exactly what the Jewish matzo, or unleavened bread, looks like today. The flat bread is pierced with holes, broken into pieces, and stripes of brown where it was baked in the fire. Remember, we learned last week that fire represents God's wrath and judgment. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is also our living unleavened bread, the bread of life. Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples the night he was arrested. That was the 14th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar and it also marked the first day of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, where Jesus' crucifixion cleansed all who would believe in him. In closing for today, I would like you to think about these things the next time you take communion. The Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, bread without sin, and Jesus. God bless you all, and goodbye. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.